Welcome to our feature interview for Insights, the faculty journal of Austin Seminary. I am William Greenway, editor of Insights and professor of philosophical theology. The author of our lead essay for the fall 2021 issue of Insights is Dr. Bridget Green, a professor of New Testament here at Austin Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Professor Green earned her PhD at Vanderbilt University, where she wrote on Luke 18, 1 through 20, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, and social relationships, under the supervision of Fernando Segovia. Professor Green is an ordained Presbyterian USA minister and is or has been on the editorial boards of Critical History of Race and Religion, Horizons in Biblical Theology, and the New and Old Testament Library series. She is or has served on the board of directors of the Presbyterian Outlook, the Mountain Retreat Association, better known as Montreat, and the Board of Trustees of Louisville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. She has written numerous articles in the area of biblical studies with special focus upon issues of class and race, which is obviously related to the lead essay and insights that we will be discussing today on kingdom and kingdom, the promise and the peril. She has also worked as a consulting editor for Westminster John Knox Press, as their Biblical Studies Acquisitions Editor, and I close with this because I'm both sad and proud to say that Bridget will soon be leaving us to take over duties as Vice President of Publishing and Editorial Director at Westminster John Knox Press. Um, and that's a big deal. This is not a place with a ton of Vice Presidents. That is a, a significant uh, position where Bridget will be influencing um, the publication director, uh, direction of this major theological press. I'm happy, I'm sad for us rather, Bridget, but I am I'm happy for you and WJK. Now, let me note that an abbreviated written version of this discussion will appear in this issue of Insights. Uh, let me also say that we may pause briefly in the middle of our discussion for those who may want to divide this interview into two parts for use in uh, group discussion. Again, the title of Professor Green's essay, which we will discuss today, is on kingdom and kingdom, the promise and the peril. Welcome, Professor Green. We are looking forward to hearing your insights about kingdom and kingdom language. Thank you, Bill. I'm glad to be here with you. Now, you were asked to choose any theme and any topic uh, for this issue of insights. And of, of all the things you could have chosen, uh, what made you chose to focus on language as a theme? Um, and of all the things you might have chosen, uh, what made you choose kingdom and kingdom as your topic uh, for this essay? Great question. Well, language um, as a choice has everything to do with the fact that one of the major sets of courses I teach at the seminary are in Greek exegesis. And so I teach a variety of courses on the different canonical texts in the New Testament. And when you teach um, Greek um, New Testament, your focus is really on language and you see the ways in which the language can be interpreted. You see the way in which uh, vocabulary has multiple definitions and meanings. And so there's an element of fluidity that comes with interpretation while still having the stability of the context to help you understand what the author is uh, trying to say. 
And so um, even now, language shifts every once in a while. There's certain words that may mean one thing today. It means something different later. Or they have different connotations. They have different weights of meaning uh, from one community to another. And so that brings us to the, the, the word kingdom. Kingdom is a complex term. It's one in which um, we are, many of us are familiar in terms of reading it in the Bible, um, especially when we uh, recite together the Lord's prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Um, and because of um, our particular U.S. context um, of being a democratic society, there are elements about kingdom language that we aren't as familiar with because that's not what we deal with on a day-to-day -day level. Um, but also, uh, kingdom language um, is understood and recognized to be very hierarchical, um, can be oppressive. Um, what if you have a, a tyrannical king or queen? Um, and so uh, we recognize that it has a lot of uh, negative weight, even though our ecclesial language is uplifting because we're asking for God's kingdom. And then you have um, a term that was introduced in our ecclesial circles relatively recently as part of the 21st century uh, ecclesial lexicon, kingdom. And kingdom is this word um, that um, Aria Sasa Maria um, uh, Diaz has uh, used in her work and a lot of folks in theology and biblical studies as well as the church have picked up on. And kingdom language has been for some communities a preferred word because it helps us understand um, us being together, um, particularly in Christian context as a family. We're part of uh, the body of Christ and, and in that we are sisters and brothers in Christ, um, God being the father or the parent head. Um, and it is a language for many that has a value of uh, shared experiences, mutuality, support and respect. However, not all kingdoms or families are, are idealistic. Some have different issues for different reasons. Um, elements of accountability are different in a kingdom and families, for example. Um, just think about, you know, as a parent, the ways in which you try to get your, your children to follow rules or comply to certain things um, and the way they may resist. Um, what are your, what are the elements of accountability or when you have a wayward cousin or a wayward brother or sister, what are the elements of accountability? And so um, as much as I really do appreciate and applaud and use the word kingdom in various ways, I also see that kingdom is still a relevant term because when Jesus was talking and doing his work, he wasn't just talking about the interrelationships um, between or among individuals, he was talking about having a shift in how society actually functions. And so kingdom language is political language, is socio-political language. And so what happens when we really pay attention to the socio-political elements of thy kingdom come, thy will be done, along with our ecclesial um, ideals of coming together in love and in justice and how we treat one another. And when, um... What would you say uh, is in Jesus's time, because this is what you do in the article so effectively, is the dominant understanding of kingdom um, and, and, and what is Jesus's relationship 
uh, understanding of kingdom and relationship to that and, and, and family, as you describe. And then maybe you could say the same thing about kingdom. Uh, what, what would kingdom have signified um, in Jesus' context to his audience? And, and how would that differ from how Jesus used the word uh, kingdom? Okay. Um, so if Jesus were to use the word kingdom or understanding of family, I think the first thing um, I would bring up is that family aren't um, includes those who aren't blood relatives. And so oftentimes when we think about uh, plant family, we think about bloodlines, DNA, uh, patrilineal or matrilineal lineages. Um, you have two gospels that start with the genealogies. And so there's a definitely an element of family being important. Um, I think also uh, the understanding that um, the kinship um, is developed because of shared ideals and shared values, um, which is different from, well, we're, we're all in the same space and we all came from the same people. So that's why he can say when um, his family comes up to see him and someone in the crowd says, hey, Jesus, your, your brother and your, your mother and your brothers and sisters are here. And he asks the question, well, who are my brother and sister? Who is my mother? Right. And, and then that question isn't one to um, invalidate his relationships with his bloodline relatives, but to say that uh, his kinship is actually expansive. It has grown. And so how does that how do we understand that and think about in terms of our interactions back in the first century, fictive fictive kinships were normal. And what does that mean? That means that you will have various families who were not necessarily related, who um, will come together, work together, um, be a part of a particular kin uh, kinship um, through these non-bloodlines relationships. Some of those relationships were political, some of them were economic, um, some of them were connected to um, being part of similar belief systems or religion or, or, or even in terms of um, being Jewish, right? You, they are referred to often as the, the sons and daughters of Abraham reconnecting to uh, that kinship. But we look at Paul, for example, particularly Romans, and he um, outlines the, the ways in which um, a community of people have been engrafted into that family tree of the sons of Abraham. So we have this very expansive understanding of kinship, including a, a, a large number of people who aren't necessarily relatives, but who come together because of shared understanding, belief, values, um, God, and so on and so forth. And the, um, the challenge of that too, um, in so many ways is, you know, in some of Jesus' um, apocalyptic sayings, he, he talks about um, brother be against brother and sister could be against sister. And so there's this understanding that there's tension that can come in family. So what do you do with that? How does that play out? And on, on what basis does that play out? So the understanding of, um, I think that, that Jesus brings the conversation around um, kinship, even though that's not the word he uses, um, he uses more sibling language, um, I think reflects both the the promise and the peril that I I, I hope I, I scratch at at least a little bit in this essay, and then with kingdom, um, the king Can I break you just right there for a yeah. second because could you give us more a sense of the peril 
of the kingdom language. I, I mean, how, because in the essay you talk in ways that I found really uh, interesting. And, and if you don't know a lot about first century studies, you're not aware of how kingdom functioned uh, sociopolitically within the Roman Empire um, and, and such. Could you just say a word about that and how Jesus, uh, I mean, I'm assuming that that, what you're talking about, which was largely new to me, uh, would not have been new to Jesus's audience, would have been the dominant notion of kingdom, uh, such that when he's talking about family or siblings or, you know, all children of God, and this, or, you know, refer to God as Abba, Father, he's doing something very different there than would have been the norm in that context. Um, is, is that correct? And could you unpack that a bit? Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. So one element um, in first century, um, that first century Roman period of the common era is the understanding of uh, pater patria. And that is the language of father of the country. And that's the um, title that the Roman Senate gave to its Caesar. And um, Augustus Caesar, actually, just to go a, a little bit into classical uh, Roman history, um, Augustus Caesar actually created um, as part of his propaganda machine, this understanding of what the idealized family is and the way in which being this idealized family plays into um, being an idealized Roman citizen. And who is the most ideal Roman citizen? Caesar himself, being the father, being the example. And so all the subjects under the empire, including little Palestine, is, is part of this, uh, this, um, this fictive kinship this national identity that's being formed with Caesar being the head. And some of this language that I might be using may be familiar um, when you think about the ways in which Paul kind of turns it on his head um, in 1 Corinthians in terms of the, uh, a little bit of the household code and, and God being the father head in, in that respect. Um, the danger of that is um, what, what happened in that that sociological uh, paradigm that uh, the Roman political arm developed is you then have little um, pot, little paters, um, or as Elizabeth Schizophrenza would put it, uh, little curios and curios, little lords um, who are head of their own domains. And so that same type of fictive kinship, familial, political, economic um, paradigm is um, dispersed in society in, in these other ways as well. And the, the peril of that is um, in, a, in the sociopolitical sense, when one is a part of this type of kinship, you are, um, especially as one who's, quote, dependent upon this lord, dependent upon this head of household, um, that dependency is one in which you have both an economic and political indebtedness to this person. And that can be very dangerous because uh, families become dependent upon this person to help them get loans, be, to become dependent upon this person because they might be 
working on their land and therefore receiving their wages. They are dependent upon this person um, in the hopes that their uh, political strategies will also help protect them, which isn't always the case. And so it, it actually is um, a very, it has the potential, let me say, um, and, and most likely played out in many ways to be a highly, not only hierarchical, but on some level abusive type of situation because of the ways of uh, subservience, sub, uh, being subservient and being subordinated um, to this uh, either person or this particular family that is the head of all these other families. And so that, that can get really um, precarious, especially if you are a person who is poor, um, without resources, have uh, no type of privileges, whether by gender or class or uh, ethnic identity or um, geopolitical uh, space. And so um, Jesus was quite aware of uh, that entire situation. Herod was on some level um, a, a pater of, of Palestine. That's not the language that we, we see or um, in, in the Bible, but in terms of doing the history, the ways in which Herod uh, used, the various Herods, mind you, um, use their uh, power in order to have various families to submit to uh, their own ideals. And so uh, it's, it's, it's pretty dangerous. And so when Jesus turns it on this head, this is where uh, you, you get an understanding that Jesus's rhetoric was a rhetoric of resistance, right? So um, Caesar and the, the Roman apparatus was, was, um, was a jealous mistress on some level. And what I mean by that is it was, or, or jealous mister, what I mean by that is um, there's an understanding that, yeah, you can, you can worship other ways, you can do other things, but what you will not forget is that Rome is, is superior. What you will not forget is that Caesar is, is, the, is the Lord and is the reason why you have what you have. Well, what if you're, you're having further conversation about another lordship? What if you're having a conversation by another Messiah? This messianic language is not language that's exclusive to Judaism. This messianic language was also language that um, Rome used in terms of understanding the work of Caesar. So this kingdom language, this kingdom language um, actually has far more political tentacles to it than it may appear. Yeah. And one of the, you say, you know, Jesus here is a bit aware of this, but one of the things you point out in the article is, you know, so you're describing this, uh, I mean, literally patriarchy hierarchy, mm -hmm. uh, where Caesar or the Caesars are at the top, Herods or the Herods and the other kings and the other uh, uh, kingdoms within the empire are below him. And then you have a hierarchy of families below that, mm -hmm. all of whom are then dependent upon for their very, their, their, their very survival, um, the, the, the pattern of familias who's above them. Mm -hmm. uh, but all that in a context, as you say there, in which 90% of the population is living beneath the poverty line. Mm 
Right. Uh, which, which also, you know, you talk about a jealous mistress. Well, it's also also a mistress or a mister who's very well aware that if 90% of your people are above or below the poverty line, you better keep a firm grip on things or you're going to have an open rebellion on your hands, right? Which actually right, right. happens in 73. You act, And you actually have in Jesus' time even a rebellion where two of the zealots are in the countryside mm -hmm. um, who are rebelling. So there's a, you, you need to have... Uh, a force um, to, to sustain that and language that's undoing that mm -hmm. by giving a different vision of kingdom, it right. then becomes extraordinarily dangerous language to the authorities. I mean, this is just a wonderful picture uh, for us to understand Jesus's context and suddenly give more of a sense of, of the threat that was posed, why he's crucified, the, the whole question, render under Caesars, all of that, uh, all these things, the the degree to which those questions were had mortal implications, um, you know, uh, in this dialogue is significant. And it is interesting here because what you end up with just then is then this tight tie uh, between kingdom and kingdom. Uh, whereas sometimes we think of these as two very different concepts. One is private. It's about the family. Uh, the other is about uh, political reigns. But actually, that's a modern way of splitting those two concepts, which you're kind of um, <clears throat> pointing out it doesn't apply in Jesus' time. Let me let me segue you back to where I cut you off from, which is then to do the same thing, uh, which you you started to unpack already. Since it, in some ways in the first century, kingdom and kingdom are overlapping um, uh, modalities uh, yes. in in people's lives. But let me let me go back to that and and have you just pick up on that as an overlapping modality, and then also how Jesus's language then is very much transforming. Uh, what people un would have understood to be kingdom uh, quite naturally at the time, which looks very different, uh, as you're arguing, from what he's putting forward. Could you unpack that a bit? Uh, sure. So um, the thing with, I think one place to start is um, the people never probably had an idealized understanding of kingdom. Um, kingdom... Um, outside of thinking about the Davidic line of David and Solomon, uh, the kingdoms uh, within for the Jewish population um, in first century Palestine is, is one that is um, hugely uh, shadowed by all the empires that have come and, um, had, and, and, and had conquered uh, this small little region. Um, and so, you know, you, in, you include, um, Babylon, you include Persia, you include Assyria, you then you, you have um, Greece, and then you have Rome. Um, in, a, in about a 600, 700 year time span, uh, Palestine was an independent nation from just under a century, like maybe about 60 years or so. Um, so they're very aware of the danger of kingdom, let alone the fact if you look at the um, Old Testament text, um, and, and particularly in, in first and second Kings and also in, in first and second Chronicles, you have even among themselves, more often than not, you have stories of king, kings who uh, did not obey God, who, who were um, disobedient in a variety of ways that uh, the way the text describes it adds to uh, the harm and the destruction that they actually received. So in, 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 in some ways you're like, in what world would kingdom have been an ideal situation? Um, in 1 Samuel, there's a, an illustration there that I think I include in the essay 
when uh, the people of Israel have had judges for 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 de- for centuries um, or at least decades, in, in in terms of leaders, and you know they're they're now among other um, other nations. And like, we want a king. We want a king too, just like everybody else. And Eli's like, are you, are you sure about that? Because once you have a king, that means your sons and daughters are no longer yours. That means your land will be confiscated for his use. Your livestock will be confiscated for your use. When you want a king, when you're asked what you're asking for, is um, you no longer having the type of independence and agency as, of, as people as you do now. So even at the outset, the scriptures delineate that this whole kingdom thing isn't necessarily the best thing ever. So what you have here in Jesus's gospel and Jesus's good news that he's bringing um, about a kingdom of God, it is one that is supposed to basically be uh, the antithesis of the, of all of their understanding of what a kingdom is. It is one in which uh, the poor are uplifted and not constantly pushed further and further down in terms of their own um, social uh, and economic standing. It's one in which um, people can get healing as opposed to maybe finding a miracle worker or having all this money in order to have the type of um, nutrition to be able to just eat um, well and to have um, access to uh, water and to um, spirits and other things that wouldn't actually um, help uh, accelerate how quickly their bodies will ail and so on and so forth. Um, He's bringing a kind of good news um, that will uh, liberate the oppressed. 90% 90% of the people are below a uh, subsistence level um, and, and, and the way in which the economy is built upon that, that's oppression in of itself, but along the fact that under Roman rule, their bodies aren't their own. What do I mean by that? That means that they could, uh, that the Roman authority could um, take people away in terms of servitude and, 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 and um, forced labor. Um, that means that they can be um, killed or abused without anyone coming to their rescue. Um, and so in so many ways, Jesus is like, no, I have, I have, I'm giving you an understanding of a way of operating and being that is not a zero sum game. That is a way in which you're not in competition with everybody just to survive but a way of being in which we will, we will bring together our resources and we will bring together, um, bring ourselves together um, to uplift and to learn and to grow as opposed to to deride and to set aside and to do those types of things that, that renders communities apart. And then a key element to all of this is this isn't um, Jesus just preaching to the poor. Um, and, and we often come to that. And I'm, I'm going to kind of lean a little bit in my dissertation work uh, just a bit in, in terms of this um, element that I want to lift up. Um, in Luke 18, um, verses 1 through 30, 
um, Jesus is telling parables and you're clear that he's among a crowd of people. Um, the first two uh, verses one through eight is the parable of the widow and judge verses uh, nine through um, 14 um, is the uh, parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Verses 15 through 17, Jesus is out of storytelling mode and is an example of Jesus's mission in which he's blessing the little children. Um, and Luke, particularly, the story is Jesus is blessing the infants. And then starting at verse 18 is the story of a certain ruler, rich ruler, asking what he can do to be saved. And why do I bring up those, sto those uh, stories other than the fact to just plug in my dissertation for a half a second. It's because <laughs> this crowd included, if you actually back up into uh, the last verses or the last pericope or major text um, in chapter 17 that immediately precedes chapter 18, Jesus's crowd actually includes Pharisees. It includes rulers, as well as including the poor, as well as including tax collectors, and various laborers and so he's not just messaging this this small this one particular group his his message his his conversations are with folks who are a part of the socioeconomic and political landscape in different ways and so this coming together in terms of sharing of resources and sharing of privileges is also a conversation that he's having with those with privilege pharisees were a group that had a lot of privilege. They had a political privilege as a unit, um, as well as having some economic privilege. If you dig a little deeper in the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector, you have to ask the question of um, how is it that you have so much in your abundance that you can give 10% of everything, where that 10% is not something that will mean food from you know one of your children or what have you um this 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 fictus uh, uh pharisee in this particular story is one with means um the certain ruler right and luke he doesn't go away sad um he's he in terms of when jesus says to him that he must give everything or distribute everything but the fact is that you understand as a ruler, he has much to give and the, to distribute what he has among the poor, which isn't Jesus telling him to become poor. It's Jesus telling him to share what he has as part of being in community together. What kind of kingdom is that? Right. What kind of kingdom is that when you're asking your rulers to dispossess enough so that everyone around you may not have to come crawling and begging for you from uh, begging from you in order to have what you need, let alone the fact that this is a, a stark contrast and uh, Jesus is using his rhetoric very powerfully um, against the Roman Empire, against that which is happening in his own sociopolitical situation. And um, it is in, in, in those ways in which he's clear, um, he knows where his message is gonna take him. Yeah. He knows it's, what's happening. It makes me think, I mean, you know, we, oh, I'm sorry, keep going. Well, I was gonna say just real quick in Luke, uh, uh, there's an example of the Pharisees who basically tell him, you know, tone it down. Herod is looking for a way to get you. Well, why mm -hmm. would Herod be seeking him out in the first place? Herod was not known as a religious figure, right? 
because the message that he's offering is so powerful. We also, we always think about resistance in terms of military resistance as a way of overcoming oppression, but the power of rhetoric is deeper and it's longer lasting. And so the folks understood that what Jesus was preaching was deeper and longer lasting. And that's why he can go from Luke to Acts. Yes. And he's tying into the prophetic tradition as well, right? Uh, and the prophets are, of course, <laughs> notoriously short-lived because the kings they <laughs> prophesied against also tended to not want them around for very long. Right. Um, as you're speaking, I'm also thinking, you know, uh, I was going to ask you later about the, the Lord's Prayer, of course, which you already, already mentioned. But we say it so quickly, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But, but in the context you're talking about, in which everyone is really quite aware of what a kingdom looks like and what an oppressive kingdom looks like. I mean, you're talking about 700 years of oppression culminating in 90% of the population living beneath subsistence level mm -hmm. under a kingdom. So these people know uh, all the downside is kingdom. But, it, but then Jesus is pointing something very different, as you say, in which you know his message of a kingdom is, is, uh, uh, is going to be a complete disruption. And upending of this, which makes me think that when we we pray that Lord's Prayer, really, what in the first century they may have heard was the Thy, right? Thy mm -hmm. kingdom come. Uh, we're not talking any kingdom. We're talking about Thy kingdom come, which means immediately that is some of the most heretical, um, you know, anti uh, Caesar, anti Herod, anti Paterfamilius, anti this impressive structure you can imagine. I mean, that is. That is what gets Jesus crucified, mm -hmm. is the threat that his rhetoric is posing there. And, and I wonder, hearing that thy, um, uh, all of a sudden it was, I'm going to hear that thy a lot more now uh, when I say thy kingdom, that this is not just any old kingdom. This is actually a radically prophetic, different kingdom. Um, and that Jesus' hearers, in a way maybe we don't, would have been immediately resonating with that and understanding it. Uh, um, let me, uh, let me you've, you've said so much here, and, and my questions are not just all uh, kaflui. Uh, we're, we're completely, uh, but but uh, let me um, let me pick up with, um, there was something definitely wanted to go. Um, oh, well, let me have you reflect for a moment on that, then this tie between kinship and kingdom. Because the other thing you talk about is not just the the peril of kingdom language, uh, which, which we're aware of, but also sometimes which we don't think to say as quickly the peril of kingdom language um and and can you talk about that a bit more the promise of it of course is our idealized you know what we all would dream of as the family um and and we all seem to have a vision of that but you also you take some time to talk about how that could be uh, perilous as well could you could you comment on that yeah I, you know um it's an area that i i will try to talk about with some sensitivity. Um, not all family systems and units have been helpful. Um, for a number of people, there's trauma attached to being part of a family. Um, and I think that we have to be, we have to pay attention to that. I think I, I recall in seminary years ago, um, how we need to be sensitive in, in how in our God talk and constantly referring to God as father, because there's an understanding that not every father was a good father not every situation was a good situation. Um, and I think that's something we have to, you know, be mindful of. And I think also um, we have to be mindful that um, 
every um every kinship um doesn't result in in the way that we would like it to be so what do i mean by that um you know one area of, of which i mean by that particularly one in our christian community um we tend to use uh kinship language as as inner circle language in reference to other christians and other believers and as i point in the essay you know there is biblical um um references for that um i mean jesus says um those who are my um my sisters and brothers are those who are hearers and doers of god's word well we can understand the hearers and doers of god's words to be other disciples um to be other christians and so we can have a very narrow view of uh, who the kinship actually is in reference to. Um, and so that means we can be very good in, in, in sharing and having compassion and wanting justice um, and advocating with and for um, other people who share our, our same values, our same beliefs, who we consider as kin. But then that means that there are folks that we're considering who are not kin, and therefore we don't necessarily extend that same level of generosity, that same level of compassion, that same level of justice, that same level of concern for those who fall outside of that circle. And unfortunately, as a church, we, we do that a fair amount. You know, we, we have a lot of conversation around what's happening in our church community, in our church homes, in our denomination. Um, but when it comes to being in our neighborhoods and, um, or in our cities, and, you know, here in um, Austin, as an example, um, the ways in which um, you have people who are being zoned out um, because of schools or so on and so forth in places. Well, I mean, for a variety of reasons, we may not see those folks as our kin and therefore extend the same type of advocacy um, on, the, on the behalf of others than we would for those we, we feel a closer tie to. And I think in the name of discipleship, I think in the name of spreading the gospel, that's problematic. I think that plays into why um, you have a number of people who have get a bad taste in their mouths when they hear um, about Christians and evangelicals and so on and so forth, because they think that um, there's this insular uh, understanding and view in terms of um, who they understand should be respected and should be understood and heard and keeping everyone out. So, you know, that in itself is also a bit of a challenge. Um, we, we use kinship language and Bill, you can appreciate this. Kinship language doesn't always include all creation, right? I mean, I mean we... We don't necessarily understand, you know, animals and the earth. That's right. I mean, and nowadays, you say kinship, almost everyone, when we say families, it, it, it would just be natural for everyone's thoughts to be completely anthropocentric. Yes. Right. Which also is not consistent <laughs> with the prophets uh, or, exactly. or the gospel. Yes. Exactly. And so we can have this very narrow view in terms of our stewardship of the earth. And what does that mean? So yeah, I, I do think that um, this kingdom language um, can be a bit perilous. And last but not least, I wanna add, I don't know, I can't recall, forgive me if I include this in the essay, but I do wanna say it now is, 
we can use kinship language as an excuse to not be political. And what do I mean by that? We can use, we can, we can um, separate um, how we understand we operate out of our Christian values in the name of church with operating in our Christian values and the way that we vote operating from Christian values and the way in which we um, engage um, city conversations or legislative conversations. Now there's some communities, whether it's out of kinship or something else or within the Christian family who, will, who run straight to it. So it's not an either or, I'm not, I'm not saying that whatsoever, but I, I will say that um, there are parts of our Christian community um, who uh, not in the name of assimilating the, the, the bending the world to our vision and our view, but just in the name of extending the justice that we believe God has called us uh, through the Torah and through the prophets and how we operate in our daily lives. And so I, I think that um, that kinship language can be what happens in my house or what happens in the houses that come together in, in the name of our, our share of faith and our discipleship. But that type of language does not um, go into the world really. Um, and, and is an example to the world by how we operate politically and not just in how nice we are or how we give to, or in our philanthropy or in our, in our givings in many ways. Are, that it, it needs to extend um, into the decisions that we participate in, participate in society. And that's why I'm, act, I'm also a, a huge proponent of kingship because kingship, you can't deny the political elements of what that word means. If we go back to the Lord's prayer with thy kingdom come, thy will be done in this, in this moment in our context right now here in the US in 2021, you know, I, I think oftentimes when we when we think thy kingdom, we, we might associate that with the church. We might associate that a little bit more more closely in terms of our Christian community and that element of thy kingdom come. What would it mean if we applied the because you had no church right in, in, in Jesus's moment, Jesus is creating a movement right there isn't that type of this type of uh, community that's fully formed and function with with presbyters and bishops and all the things right. So what what would it look like if in that prayer when we say thy kingdom come that we are also envisioning the same level of disruption, disruptive social upheaval, uh, reversal in the elements of our society that are highly problematic being the work that we're called to do with God. Mm -hmm. And it's not to say, which I, I think, um, I, I, I do believe that Jesus was not binary. I don't think it was a, a, a ones and zeros in terms of understanding the, the good um, and the, or the promise and the perils of kingdom, I think that, um, or kingdom, I think that there's a sense that in many ways, these elements are helpful. You know, who, who doesn't want an aqueduct and have water flowing in places where you didn't have water flow before, right? Um, so it's not necessarily to say that you, you tear it all down, 
but there are the elements that are oppressive, the elements that are against um, what we understand, what is understood to be God's command um, to both love God and to love one another in these very substantial ways. If you unpack the Ten Commandments and unpack um, Leviticus and, and other and the prophets along those lines, um, what would that really look like? And I think that's the part where the church is, is most challenged um, in terms of the way in which we um, have um, we have conflated partisanism and politics. No one, we don't want you to talk about politics because that means you're talking about um, GOP or Republican versus Democrat versus Libertarian. And so we associate being political with being partisan. Being political is, is understanding and recognizing um, political comes from the, the, the Greek uh, polis or polis, which just means city or people. You know, in terms of uh, us really engaging um, the, 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 the place that we live that with other people the text is calling us to do that. And I think in saying that kingdom come, I think that kingdom language is around being involved on a societal level and not just on this ecclesial level or not just on um, this more um, uh, eschatological level um, in terms of thinking about um, the, the end times and what we're doing along that work as opposed to, well, the realized eschatology is how do you make it happen on earth as it is in heaven? And that's mm -hmm. the challenge that we are, we're constantly working with every day. And um, it always reminded me of, uh, um, I mean, I'm a theologian in part, right? So I'm full yes. <laughs> seminary. So Calvin comes to mind and, and the fact that he dedicated his inst institutes to um, King Francis, was it? I think King Francis. I might be wrong about the king, but the king of France at any rate. Mm -hmm. And um, and what he then did in the institutes after this very, you know, um, uh, 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 syncophatic uh, uh, dedication, right, to the king. But in the course of the institutes, he, he says, well, this is what a Christian king or a godly king or a, a real king would do. Mm -hmm. And what he lays out is the foundations for rebellion against a king who, it turns out, isn't a legitimate king, which in the next centuries uh, actually is used that way uh, to overthrow and to resist um uh, 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 kingdoms, literally, which are, are on that basis, not kingdoms. And so, uh, and, and it, it strikes me, I mean, we, in some ways, the, we talk about kingdoms being old, old institutions, but if you think as a kingdom, a kingdom being um, hierarchies, uh, which resemble that paterfamilias, where people's uh, very, uh, you know, ability to survive is dependent upon their fidelity to people who have um, the power of, 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 of the economy, their economic survival over them, with really no democratic regress. I mean, not only is the world full of actual literal kingdoms still, uh, which would want to be, which could be easily quickly critiqued in this, but also, you know, de facto kingdoms, uh, both at the national and maybe at, at, at the legal in terms of, you know, transnational regimes or other sort of, uh, of institutionalized structures. Um, and, and, and this then becomes a route for protest against all of that uh, and as an alternative vision. And uh, uh, sorry, my screensaver just went on. I'm sorry about that. Uh, 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 um, 
in some ways that makes this all the more pertinent. Uh, and, and then the key thing, I, I, I like what you're doing here, um, let me combine a couple of questions, is, 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 is often I've heard this as a, as a fairly strident debate on both sides, uh, kingdom or kingdom. And, uh, and some people are, you know, just enraged if you use kingdom because kingdom's the language and other people are just enraged if you use kingdom because kingdom's oppressive and kingdom is what we're after. And I was wondering if that was a part of your history in this debate and, and if you were making a move that was not just about this debate, but about, you know, all sorts of debates that kind of end up focusing on this or that term. Uh, when 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 you unpack the terms, it turns out there's actually a fullness of understanding where 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 perhaps the people actually who are disagreeing have a, a large area of of shared concern. It's just a matter of of expressing things more fully and being aware of how one's using language and pointing out both. I mean, to go back to your title, the promise and the peril uh, that can be associated with you know almost any term. I, I, I'm not sure of a of a of a movement or a, a, a critical phrase which is, has not been misappropriated um, and used against its um, intended ends. And I and I'm, think of this across faith and wisdom traditions where, where this happens. And so it seems to me like you're also uh, uh, making a gesture um, in terms of the way you proceed on this issue, which has implications not just for this issue, but for how we engage in these uh, sorts of debates. I was wondering if that was in your background of, of your exposure to this, and that was part of what you were trying to do. Um, yes. So um, I am aware of the strident um, viewpoints on either side using the language kingdom and kingdom. Um, in some ecclesial circles, um, kingdom is coming uh, more greatly into the um, fore. And with that, they're pushing kingdom back. And then those who are you know, pro-kingdom, um, sometimes it, it has far more do with the, the literal, the literalism in terms of the translation of basileia um, in the Greek, which is actually kingdom and not kingdom, um, as part of it, and for those who want to um, be as true as possible in terms of the, being close to the text, you know, wanting to use kingdom and continue with kingdom, and frankly, you know, it's it's in our ear, right? We've how how long have um, you know uh, we've we've read the King James version of the Bible. Um, and, 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 and how the, we use kingdom and hymns and, and liturgy and so on and so forth. You know, I think sometimes it has just to do with, this is the word that I'm familiar with and therefore we need to continue. Um, let, me, well, let me break, let me, cause, cause what you say also in the article uh, and actually citing um, uh, Sasi Diaz on this is she thinks she has a more critical theoretical sort of um, uh, uh, read on why that certain language has mm -hmm. actually endured, um, right. uh, which w contrary to what it should mean. Could you comment on that too? Because she wants to say, it's not an accident that this is the language we've become familiar with and that we've heard a lot. Um, right. could you, she, I just want to make sure you don't miss that here because right. it's a great- she, she, makes an, she makes an argument that um, the kingdom language um, also holds because those who are in power and who are in those places of being in the kingdom want to continue to uplift it as part of the, the conversation, a part of the, um, the uh, lingua franca, um, as you would. And I, I'm, I, 
would not disagree. I think there's some truth to that. To that, I um, wouldn't say it's the only reason. I do think it's a, a line of reasoning that has contributed to uh, that language over centuries, and not just you know in the last uh, few decades. Um, the reason why I um, am a proponent of both terms is because you know I do think. Uh, rhetorically, they both have their um, their strengths. Um, I think that rhetorically, we're actually using both language, uh, both terms from time to time. Um, I do think that when you are in spaces of um, community that is so good at creating opposing teams, you would want to use kingdom language to say that we're all we're all here together with the same purpose, the same shared values, moving in the same trajectory, you know, prayerfully, faithfully um, living out the will of God. Um, and so uh, the um, Oscar Romero um, quote that is included that um, Isasa Diaz had um, in her article. Um, when the soldiers had come um, in order to take uh, to take over and, and to execute so many of the people, um, Bishop Romero, you know, says, but we're all the same blood. Like, why would you kill your family? Like, that's that's not how family work. That's part of the argument that he makes. He he is hoping rhetorically the sense of, you know, you're killing your brother and your sister would prevent what happens, which is the slaying of, you know, hundreds of people, including himself. Um, there are times, though, um, even uh, the, the language around um, kingdom that it is understood to be so oppressive and, um, and hierarchical, which is true, but it's also helpful in terms of thinking about our call to help transform society. Um, a kingdom, a, my, you know, my family is an alpha. I mean, we might be able to have a, an imprint in society in, in some ways, um, but my family isn't called, you know, necessarily to uh, be this huge force in transforming society. The way in which the kingdom of God, as Jesus proclaimed, um, is called to do. And what we lose in not using that kingdom language is the sense of responsibility to greater society, to the greater whole, and our um, spreading of the good news. And the good news goes back to um, liberating the oppressed, um, healing the sick, um, releasing the captives. Sometimes we, we forget about, you know, the oppressed and the captives. It almost sounds like you're quoting the New Testament there. I, I know. I mean, how, how, <laughs> how dare I in, in so many ways? Um, and so I, I, I do think that we need both. Um, I think that, uh, one, we are, we are doing ourselves a disservice if we think we have the language to um, encapsulate the divine work. I think that we do a disservice when we think our one word best describes what we understand God is doing. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I think um, God's um, imagination and ability to um, literally create out of nothing 
um, helps us to understand that um, our language, our human language may be flawed in being in fully describing what God is calling us to do. And so I do think that's why I think that there is definitely space for kingdom and kingdom language and why I would be in disagreement in trying to use one word over against the other, because I think in yeah, that I, way, we miss the point of the expanse of even the expansiveness of the kingdom itself, where we're losing the point of the expansiveness of God's project through us. Yeah, I think that's what I love about your essay is in the end, it feels to me, and maybe you could say where you would agree or disagree with this. Uh, in the end, what you're saying is to, to people who have defended, you know, kingdom to the hilt, what you need to do is is be very sure that you're aware of and naming uh, the limitations of kingdom language, both because it can be apolitical and because a lot of kinship systems are not <laughs> uh, the ideal. Um, and so you also have to, and the people who do kingship, kingship language, kingdom language, need to be very aware of the dangers of the, of the, of the way it can implicitly be misunderstood uh, to affirm uh, the wrong sort of kingdoms, plus the patriarchy that's just embedded within the language. Um, but on the other hand, to, to, to be able to, to take term, terms, take time to be sure to uh, not just be de defend language because it happens to be our language and we like it, but defend it because it, it's a picture of a, a counter politically counter political movement. So suddenly the people who want to use kingdom language are really the political revolutionaries in the sense that Jesus was. Right. Um, and at that point, you find, find them very much in kinship with the kinship people because mm -hmm. a lot of them are very politically interested. So I like what I like about the promise of your article is, is not just that it, it, it doesn't pursue this either or and, and uh, what sometimes is vehement antagonism, uh, but it, it, it shows where both groups actually um, have a lot of overlap in their concerns and should have a lot of shared territory um, in how they explain and interpret the, the use of both terms. And then maybe they're going to be wanting to use both terms with those explanations. I like that. I mean, one thing I always say in my intro to theology class is don't try to find the right word uh, for God. It doesn't yeah. exist. They mm -hmm. all, you know, we don't have that. I think what you're saying, there's no perfect language. Multiply. You mm -hmm. multiply your metaphors and keep track of where they can be harmful and where they can be good and, and, and just keep that in play and forget about getting the perfect uh, word. And, and I felt like your, your essay in very concrete, historically informed, detailed ways unpacked that in this controversy. Uh, and that's why I think uh, I really... Um, and, and I'm sure your dissertation does this, it sounds like, to some degree um, as well. Um, is that, would that, did you, uh, I want to make sure, because I'm kind of summarizing I, what I, I would have I wish you had written the summary. You encapsulated <laughs> it brilliantly, Bill. Really um, let me raise, uh, 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 um, just, uh, uh, let's see. Um, uh, um, all right, I want to raise, um, one more issue, um, and then I just want to ask if you have practical advice for pastors or Christian educators in this um, uh, review. Um, so um, it, uh, you 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 emphasize the way, um, of course, Ada Maria Isaze Diaz. Am I am I saying her name correctly? Is that as far correct? as I know? Yeah. Okay, um, and. Um, uh, um, was uh, a Cuban uh, American theologian, in some ways the mother of Mujerista, um, 
theology of Muhammad is just one, so this is kind of a, 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 a um, and, and uh, Muharista is just a, a way of saying uh, uh, it's not feminist or womanist, but kind of Cuban-American for her uh, theology coming out of a Latinx uh, perspective. Um, and uh, But then it's not really clear um, precisely how that plays out in a pivotal way in the way you uh, use and interpret her work. Um, and at the same time, especially <clears throat> today, when there's so much emphasis on the, the, the role identity plays um, in our understanding and our interpretation and, and keeping track of that, um, it's, it's impossible not to notice that you as a, a, a black woman uh, New Testament scholar um, uh, dealing with language, uh, to, to, to what I could see, don't really um, address it in any way which has which is identity specific. Um, right. And I'm wondering, you know, is that intentional? Is there a, is there something worse that you unconsciously or consciously are looking for us to take away from that, uh, or is uh, and and and, um, and so I just wanted to have some comment on that, uh, uh, particular given its emphasis in the current context. It's almost impossible not to notice um, as somehow significant in its in its apparent absence. Yeah, um, I did not write this from a uh, particularly a womanist perspective per se. Um, and I didn't write it, you know, from a particularly African-American hermeneutic, uh, hermeneutical way. Um, but at the same time, uh, issues as it relates to class, issues as it relates to um, politics, um, economics, um, and, and the ways in which I, I talk about you know, kingdom um, language um, are just as much a part of my issues and concerns that are rooted in my class, that are rooted in my uh, gender and rooted in my ethnicity as it would be for other people. And so um, it's, it's not necessarily, well, one, sometimes, um, Bill, people can lose the argument because they're so focused on the personal identifying elements. And um, that I, I can't say that I, I wrote it saying, I'm gonna not completely write myself into this essay um, as much as the way in which I'm, I'm very attentive, at least I try to be um, attentive um, to this argument as it plays out in all the communities in which I am a part of and interact. And my communities in which I am a part of and I interact um, definitely includes the black community. It definitely includes being part of communities of women. It also includes being in a, in a city, in a society that is according to the census just most recently, slightly um, below 50% that is white. Um, this being an ordained minister in a denomination that has a variety of um, sociological um, parties who are part of it um, in terms of race, in terms of um, class, in terms of gender. Um, in some ways, um, Carl Jung is known to be said to say that which is universal is most particular or that which is most particular is universal. So my particular story still speaks to a more universal conversation and this universal conversation speaks to my particular story without me saying as a black woman 
I argue, I believe, I see. Um, what you, I hope that you see is as a, um, as a budding scholar who is deeply um, interested in the, the message of the biblical text, who is shaped and informed by the life of all the churches that she has been a part of, and who recognizes for herself that her discipleship is not just one that happens within the context of a congregation, but in, in my lived experiences outside the walls of the church. This is what I think uh, some of the conversation needs to tend to. Um, and so it's, um, it's from that perspective uh, that I write. I'm very grateful for the particularity um, through which um, Ada Maria Sasa Diaz writes um, using her mujerista, mujerista theology in understanding you know, what is family and what is kinship and, and how she defines kinship. But I also know that um, her um, description of family isn't the only, isn't exclusively a Hispanic Latinx uh, description of family. It's one in which many communities would agree is what family is and, 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 and how family behaves. And so um, I think that there is some merit, you know, of course, in bringing in the uh, more personal social location um, as part of that conversation. For me, that element is um, part of my kingdom work, part of my, my participation prayerfully in the work of God has this political element. And to be, um, to be a Black American in the U.S. is political in of itself in so many ways and the ways in which I have to engage society. But at the same time, that burden shouldn't be exclusively mine. Right, that burden of action, that burden of advocacy, that burden towards you know wanting to have um, justice for everyone and wanting to have access for everyone and accessibility for everyone, is not the burden for those um, for whom those privileges um, and that which shouldn't be privileges don't exist. But it's also a burden of those of us who have the privilege, who have the access, who are free to engage. And so um, I think that is another reason why subconsciously um, I don't feel like I have to write this as um, an African-American woman um, because the issues at hand and the conversations I hope to have is one in which we all engage and we all see ourselves to be a part of. Yeah. And that's where I, I, I thank you for that answer. And it because it, it's kind of what I had a hunch afterwards is in a sense, with regard to writing from a, a overtly radically perspectival perspective and writing with reference. Of course, we all bring our perspectives in writing with reference to more shared qualities uh, that you actually kind of performed a balancing act between those two, uh, similar to what you did with Kingdom and Kingdom simply by the way that you pursued this essay with your identity. And, mm -hmm. and, and, and I like what you said, you know, like for me, of course, given all the norms, it would be easy for me to be the blank slate, right? But I'm Italian. Mm -hmm. uh, so when you say kinship to an Italian, that is very particular uh, sets of meanings, which are, are indexed there. We all come from that in some way or another. But nonetheless, you chose to spoke to a level at which we all know what it is, uh, to live under oppressive systems where people use their power over us in, in subtle ways to control, uh, to, to, to uh, marginalize, to disempower. Uh, and, and, and we all know what it is to be 
in 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 families which are you know probably most of us have seen families which are relatively healthy, and most of us probably have seen dynamics in families which are unhealthy. And so um, you know we we bring that in, and we 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 go with the ideal, and we come from our unique perspectives. But then there's this area of overlap, and so th there's no. Um, absolutism there for you there either i feel like i'm losing my thread here a little bit but but you 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 focused on areas where uh while there might be other topics you'd address where the identity issue would become in more particularly uh and the same for me where i'd need to name that more particularly uh and and so we're not you're not denying that we're not denying there's places for that at the same time there's a place for this other uh gathering uh where there's going to be a lot of overlap uh, right. John Wall's notion of overlap kept coming into mind. So you have this area, particularly area you don't want to lose, but you also don't want to lose that area of overlap. Um, and uh, and I thought that that in some ways you performed that uh, by uh, address you know speaking uh, uh, identifying um, uh, Associate Diaz uh, particularly with a muharistic uh, uh Cuban American identity, but then focusing also on this area of overlap. And I thought that was also uh, really interesting how that was kind of all playing out in a, in a subtext. Um, uh, for me, at any rate. Um, well, let me. Here's the final question, uh, and I just want to. Uh, I'm going to kind of uh, just close it after that. But I just want to thank you for what I think is just a such an insightful um, and uh, valuable um, uh, and interesting essay. Um, and actually, in some ways, uh, you know, maybe I'm wrong here, but it, it, sometimes these debates in the academy, in particular, are so um, so vehement that making the move you're making here actually is a bit daring uh, right. when you're talking about to some degree uh, in some of the circles we're in uh, rehabilitating the kingdom language uh, and such. So I, I thought that was also uh, daring on your part. Uh, but but on the whole, um, in terms of what you hope for, uh, both within the academy, uh, you know, in the classrooms and also for pastors and Christian educators and, and what others take away from this, um, and and move out and how they then how they use this um, in their lives and their teaching in their liturgies and in, in their sermons what would you hope uh, would be the 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 the, um, the learnings that would come from uh, this the takeaway from your essay well one hope is for um, those who've never heard of the kingdom language that they will be introduced to uh, this theological term um, and that they will sit with it as a possible you know, term to include um, in their ecclesial spaces or in their sermons or in their, their Bible studies and to do deep dives with it, you know, as much as they can and it, and, and it makes sense. Um, and the same with the kingdom language, you know, I, I think, um, like I said, some of us are so far removed from the kingdom language that the the true version that we have in our, our mind is one that is represented by, I hate to say, Disney or a, or a Christian version of it, um, right? Like, and so, so the Magic Kingdom is a, is a kingdom that does kingdom. not threaten the status quo. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and, 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 and I don't say that by no means in, um, in disrespect as much as we might need to... Um, think critically about when we when we use kingdom language, what are we imagining? What are we envisioning? And, um, and in that, what are the promises and the perils of it, especially when you root that kingdom language more closely to Jesus's context, 
more closely to what the people were experiencing and why would they ask for God's kingdom to come and what would that look like? Um, I, I, my hope is that um, just further study and conversation about these terms and how they apply in our lives today would be the, the, the best thing ever, I know, I think, and to not um, use them as, in an either or fashion, but to recognize that there is space in our God talk for both of these words and even more words that I haven't even thought of or considered in trying to describe God's activity and God's call for us to participate in that um, activity. One of the things I enjoy most about teaching at Austin Seminary is that we recognize that these questions that we're asking, these um, thoughts that we are pondering have real life implications in um, many of our students' lives and those who they're called to lead and to serve. And um, it's a true gift and privilege to have this type of conversation, not in theoretics, but in the sense of, you know, what are the praxis elements? And please hear, I'm not downing the conversation and the theoretics because you have to get there sometimes to get to the praxis or in describing the praxis, right? Praxis comes first and the theory comes afterwards. Um, but how do we continue to have these conversations of examining language that we use all the time every day in order to be uh, conscientious of our intention? And when we are asking for us to uh, live as the kingdom of God, and when we're asking for God's kingdom to come. Yes, yes. Um, and I am going to say something because in a way we didn't get to the concrete, but we're set up for it, right? Especially, it seems to me anyway, well, and this is statistically the case, we're living in times of, of, of growing um, uh, national and uh, and international inequities, um, and and also growing um, disparities in politically power, political power. Uh, so even in in in, in uh, nations which have democratic names, uh, often increasingly they're functioning de facto as kingdoms in the old Roman Empire sense. So, I, I mean, that's where to, to bring up any of those examples concretely, then we would have to do very concrete analysis. We couldn't just do that off the top of our heads here or quickly, it, that takes more analysis. But you, what you have set us up for now that we've understood the, the political and social ramifications of both kinship and kingship calls um, is, is the many ways where wherever we're seeing uh, a growth in inequities uh, a disempowerment of people to have voice um, in all the ways, for instance, Gutierrez talks about a cultural voice, an economic voice, mm -hmm. a political voice. In all of those ways, we are immediately called by both kingdom and kingdom language, right. uh, by the gospel language you're talking about, to actually speak out um, and make a difference. And that's yes. a very concrete call. Is, is that, that's my big amen to your essay, but. Uh, and, 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 and let it be done. <laughs> right. Well, Bridget, thank you uh, for a stimulating essay. Our talk has gone now for far longer than it should have, but I think it's been great. And so I'm hoping people will take time uh, to discuss it. Um, you've taken a term, a, a debate, which can be fraught in the church. And, and, and maybe this is a good example of what scholarship can do through good and patient and passionate scholarship and reading of the New Testament. 
um, you found a way to to let us see past maybe what might have been um, oppositions and, and maybe see a, a place for common ground, which is uh, profoundly uh, prophetic uh, and profoundly consistent with the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, thank you so much for that contribution. Um, and uh, we're going to miss you here um, at Austin Seminary, but we're going to be excited to see um, the way in which you guide uh, Westminster John Knox Express. So thank you very much, Bridget. Thank you, Bill. It was my pleasure.